I'm different from me yesterday and tomorrow and even this morning and later and later today. And Audre Lorde was so committed to really looking at who are we? Who are we becoming? What are the things that we know about ourselves today that we wouldn't have been able to tell ourselves the truth about yesterday? Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes Podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today we're talking to Alexis Pauline Gums, recipient of the 2023 Wyndham Campbell Prize for Poetry. Alexis is a self-described queer black troublemaker, black feminist love evangelist, and aspirational cousin to all sentient beings. She is the author of Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals, Dub, Finding Ceremony, M. Archive, Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugitivity, and a forthcoming biography of the subject of our conversation today, the poet Audre Lorde. There's a train going by. <laughs> just want to track that for the future editing. We might hear one on my end at some point, too. So. Okay. <laughs> it can be trains in harmony. That's right. <laughs> well, Alexis, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. And this has been really fun for me, to, because having been an English major and worked in the field of literature my entire adult career, I've, of course, read Audre Lorde, but mostly in bits and pieces. I've never actually read an entire standalone collection of her poetry from start to finish. And so reading The Black Unicorn was really an interesting experience for me. I felt like I discovered this poet that I didn't know before, even though I, I felt like I had read her before. So I'm really excited to to talk to you about it today. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's it's my favorite. I have my first paperback edition here. I think that it was Audre Lorde's favorite collection of her own poems, and it was the one that she really protected the integrity of. She didn't actually excerpt it. She really uh -huh. considered it to be a whole experience. So I'm glad that you got to have the experience of reading it all the way through. One of the things that really strikes me about it, too, is the range of it. I mean, she goes from a little sort of everyday poem about getting contact lenses to warrior princesses in <laughs> West Africa. And, and, and there's a lot in between, too, both, yeah. you know, in terms of subject matter and form. And what was going on with her at that point that she was thinking so broadly about the work that she was doing? This book was really influenced by definitely the time of her life that she was in when she wrote most of these poems. And what's interesting is that this is the collection that she describes as she felt like she wasn't writing poetry. She was going through a lot. She had her first cancer scare. She was going through a divorce. All sorts of things were happening. And she was like, wow, this hasn't really been a generative time for my poetry. And then she went back and looked at her journals and she was like, oh, wait, <laughs> you know, I've actually been writing this whole time. She traveled to West Africa twice in the early 70s, was really thinking about this question of what it means to be a woman of African origin in the United States. And so she was fascinated by all of the stories. She actually wrote a grant to try to go back to West Africa to do more documentation of some of the stories that inspire the poems in The Black Unicorn and was denied the grant, which I'm like, what would the world have been? But anyway, she was just really that interested and she started to read the work of, of other poets from West Africa and she was using it in her life, right? So she was navigating her health. She was navigating her personal relationships. She was realizing what an impact her relationships 
had on her physical health. And then she was doing what she always did, which is reading the newspaper front to back and focusing on the back, you know, like those smaller stories that she felt didn't necessarily get enough attention, but really said something about what was going on in the world. So that's why you have a poem like Sahara that's really about like, what is it like to be on the African continent, which was transformative for her. But then you also have Journey Stones, where she's cataloging the people who've hurt her and laying a stone down to release, but also articulate what those pains have been. I'm interested in her relationship to Africa. Having worked on the Wyndham Campbell Prizes over the years, we've had a lot of African recipients of the prize, and we've had a lot of African-American recipients of the prize. And it's really interesting having some of those conversations to see how African-Americans perceive themselves in relationship to Africa and how African writers perceive themselves in relationship to African-Americans, but also in relationship to African-Americans' perceptions of Africans. Does she delve into some of those complexities outside of the poetry anywhere, or has she written about those kinds of complexities elsewhere in her work? Oh, definitely. So Audre Lorde is writing these poems. She's coming out of a Black arts poetry movement that has these cultural nationalist tendencies, right? And she is one of the people who's wearing dashikis and wrapping her head in a gele and really part of that visual representation of Africanness in the Americas that was so important to this African-American cultural renaissance. And for her understanding of herself as an Afro-Caribbean woman born in the United States, she started reading the work of African poets. She became very involved in the movement in solidarity against apartheid. And that meant she was actually having conversations with women who were her peers, who were other artists who were living on the continent, um, especially in Southern Africa at that point. And the complexity of that is a huge engine for her poetry. She saw herself as a person with a responsibility because of the United States complicity in the apartheid economy to be countering the misinformation that the U.S. news media was sharing about the situation in Southern Africa. All of that is to say, she talks about the creative power of difference in terms of her work to develop what we now call the theory of intersectionality in the United States. She thought about power and privilege in relationship to every country where Black people lived that the U.S. had an influence. And she thought about the specific role of African-American citizens in holding the United States accountable. I'm glad you brought up the creativity of difference, because that was something, as I was doing my research this week, and I was like flipping through Sister Outsider, and I, of course, read her most famous essay, The Master's Tools, Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And that, that passage on the creativity of difference really struck me in an interesting way, because... It's calling for the recognition of difference, and it's doing it in this very kind of localized context, right? It's like a feminist conference. Where is it? Like at NYU or something? It was a, a conference celebrating an anniversary of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, and it was at the Graduate Center at City University of New York, which is also important because Audre Lorde worked within the City University of New York system. That's where she went to school, That, except for her master's degree from Columbia. That was like the site of her whole academic life. And she was invited kind of as an afterthought to this feminist conference, but it was like all white, supposedly straight feminists in there and then Audre Lorde, right? 
And she really wanted these things to really come through that you can reproduce oppression within a group that you're saying is all the same. We're all women. So there's no cop out like, well, we're all women. So we can't be doing anything oppressive because she was like, actually, it's happening. <laughs> I think it's happening here. I'm experiencing it now. And also that difference is actually rich. The nuance and the difference, and this is part of why Audre Lorde would be like, I am a Black lesbian, feminist, poet, warrior. And, you know, like, that's actually the engine of our transformation. And it's why we need each other. And it's it's what community can mean. Because she was somebody who, in certain feminist spaces, in certain Black nationalist spaces, was asked to silence parts of who she was. Oh, well, it's divisive. We don't want to talk about gender here. We don't want to talk about race here because it's divisive. She was saying, no, it really makes us so much more powerful if we can acknowledge that the fact of being together and different is our hugest resource. She saw creativity as this engine of transformation and as the way that she could fight for the world that she believed in, which she believed must include all of us in our full complexity and honor what we have to learn from each other's differences. Why is it so difficult to enact that in practice? <laughs> it's terrifying. I mean, here's the thing. The terrifying thing is that not it's happening on multiple scales, right? So there's differences. Like we're relating to each other across difference, right? We have different experiences. We grew up differently. We have been perceived by the world differently. We have to find a language to communicate across those differences. That's already a lot, but it's also happening within each of us on a time scale. I'm different from me yesterday and tomorrow and even this morning and later and later today. And Audre Lorde was so committed to really looking at who are we? Who are we becoming? What are the things that we know about ourselves today that we wouldn't have been able to tell ourselves the truth about yesterday? It's difficult because it means confronting our fears, acknowledging truths about ourselves that we really would prefer to push away. And because if it was just an idea, abstractly, maybe I could say, okay, I put a period on it here. But we're alive and we're living beings in community with each other, which means it's going to stay messy. We're going to stay confused. There's always going to be more that we need to learn. And for some people that can feel like, well, that's exhausting, <laughs> you know, like why even try? But then what Audre Lorde says is that's what is exciting about being alive. I was thinking back to what you were saying about her being the, the lone, strange black woman at this all white feminist conference. And I couldn't help thinking of the title poem of the black unicorn. Right. And also in relation to this idea of identity being interchangeable and complex. And it's, I wonder if maybe you could read that poem for us and we could we could talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I would love to. So this is The Black Unicorn by Audre Lorde. The black unicorn is greedy. The black unicorn is impatient. The black unicorn was mistaken for a shadow or symbol and taken through a cold country where mist painted mockeries of my fury. It is not on her lap where the horn rests, but deep in her moon pit, growing. The black unicorn 
is restless. The black unicorn is unrelenting. The black unicorn is not free. Hmm. The middle section between the repetitions, I think, is really thorny and difficult to parse in some ways. It's written in a very clear language, but you know, the black unicorn was mistaken for a shadow or symbol. It's straightforward enough. But then, and taken through a cold country where mist painted mockeries of my fury. And also, I love the line breaks there, the way that the meaning unfolds. What do you, what do you read there? Well, I mean, first of all, it's the brilliance of moving from a third person passive voice into the personal because like the black unicorn exists the black unicorn was taken right doesn't say who took the black unicorn but then it's my fury right like suddenly it becomes so personal and it happens like so fast right and it's not necessarily clear that she hasn't stepped out like maybe this is the speaker or maybe this is the unicorn exactly and i love that type of ambiguity as anyone who has read undrowned knows and i guess I'll, i'll say a few things contextually about the black unicorn And this symbol that's actually on the front of the book, this is actually a crown that the Bambara people use. It looks like, I would say it looks kind of like an antelope with like long horns Uh and this spiked back. And Audre Lorde had an image of this on her altar at home while she was writing the black unicorn. There's this idea of the unicorn that is a fantasy. And then there's this actual spiritual cultural use of this figure that has been generated by the Bambara people, which is a group of people that she was really interested in. But then there's also the fact that Audre Lorde had published for years. She published two of her books with Broadside Press, the most influential publisher of the Black Arts Movement. And the Black Unicorn is also a phrase that the publisher Dudley Randall uses. So he has his own poem and it's like the white critic to the Black artist, I think is is the name of that poem, where he's railing against the idea that the white critic says that the Black poets shouldn't write about revolution and they shouldn't write about politics. They should write about something universally beautiful like a white unicorn. And Dudley Randall is thinking, what about a Black unicorn, right? So there's layers to it because that's the press that Audre Lorde ultimately needed to leave because of the sexism and some of the things that, that, you know, she didn't feel were supported about her. So So when you get the black unicorn is not free and you get the black unicorn, it is not on her lap where the horn rests, but deep in her moon pit, she's like, I'm claiming it for the feminine. And I'm also saying that there's more freedom to have. So that's where you get a cold country where mist painted mockeries of my fury. I mean, imagine it's like being gaslighted, right? Like mist is painting mockeries of my fury. Like I'm saying this is a problem and everyone's like, what are you even talking about? We don't see that. We, we don't, that's not real. You know, that doesn't exist. Thus the insistence of the repetition in this poem. The black unicorn is unrelenting. The black unicorn is not free. And there's a lot of not in the first few poems in this collection. You'll, mm. you'll see, you know, a woman speaks ends. I am woman and not white. It's like she's making this space from the house of Yamaya. I am the sun and moon forever hungry for the sharpened edge where day and night shall meet and not be one. So it really has this energy of clearing space, of saying, there are these definitions that have been made, and I'm not that. I'm actually challenging the idea. It's these same ideas of sameness, like, well, there's blackness, there's 
womanhood. There's day and there's night. There's binaries, right? And she's like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Look, it's so much more complicated than that. And that's what this poetry collection is about to do, right? I feel like she sets us up for that in those first three poems. You were talking, when you were talking before about the other Black Unicorn poem and the response of that, or that poem being written in response to white critics who are making these claims about the universality or lack thereof in, in Black writing. Did she have any kind of response to those types of critiques, which I'm sure that she came up against again and again, especially in that era? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she had a really strong idea of what poetry was and should do. And she really was frustrated with an idea of quote-unquote universality that basically for her was just like detachment this removal. And she believed that poetry, poetry makes something happen is the name of one of her essays that was not published during her lifetime. And she's like, poetry is actually supposed to do something, you know, and not, yes, politically in the world, but it's supposed to do something like in your body to your emotions. It's supposed to give you another relationship to your own power and the changing aspect of your life today right now when you read this poem that makes something else possible and if it doesn't do that she did not consider it to be poetry she's like there's word exercises people do and they're not all poetry you know like she felt really strongly about that and obviously as a teacher of poetry she really emphasized that to her students i, w I was speaking with a writing teacher at a prestigious university, which I will not name, who was talking about there are students who come in and he'll be teaching Ginsburg and then he'll be teaching Jamaica Kincaid. And when they get to the Jamaica Kincaid, they're like, this is identitarian. And it's like, but everybody had an identity. You know, It's not to say Ginsburg didn't have an identity. It's just that it has been so often used to silence or really, you know, escape and find a way out of exactly this creative power of difference that Audre Lorde was emphasizing. I remember the first time I read Ginsburg, honestly, we read Supermarket in California in English class in my high school. And I was just like, what is this? You know, I was like, could I just like get high and go to a grocery store? And that's supposed to be poetry. You know, I, I just wasn't feeling it. And I had to be like, okay, <laughs> there is difference. And there's also something happening here and how do I respond to it? And what does it make me think about? And I continue to think about that moment. What was I trying to avoid? What did I not want to engage, right? And I think that comes up when you're reading poetry, it's personal, it's specific, it's experimental. It might be asking a lot of you as a reader and there might be a point where we wanna be like, but I don't want to. And it's like, okay, but am I open to the transformation of poetry? I would say that this idea of universality has been a mess. It's operated in order to maintain a status quo that doesn't need to be maintained. It actually does need to change. And I think Audre Lorde's practice was such an important model of that. But I will say that to this day, I think that Audre Lorde's poetry itself is understudied. Even in the work of Audre Lorde, I have had three conversations this week with brilliant scholars who have told me they feel afraid to write about Audre Lorde's poetry. They feel afraid to teach Audre Lorde's poetry because they don't feel as confident teaching the poetry as the essays, right? Because when it comes to her poetry, it's like, 
it's doing something to you emotionally, has all this complexity, it has this different imagery, and it feels easier to teach the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house because this is what she said and this is her argument, whereas her poetry is as it should be working a whole spell on you, you know, <laughs> like that, like that's, that's what's happening. And I do think that many people are threatened by that, even literary scholars. It took bravery for Audre Lorde to write these poems, and it actually takes bravery to engage them. And I want us to be that brave because the transformation that is on the other side of that braveness, it's the same braveness we need to bring to each other and to our relationships with each other and to our relationships with ourselves. Audre Lorde almost didn't even publish Sister Outsider. And imagine if we didn't have those essays, right? They are so important. And sometimes I really grieve the fact that even people who love Audre Lorde and know that she's a crucial voice actively avoid her poetry. I think I have two responses to that. Like one is that we could discuss what it is about Audre Lorde's poetry in particular that makes these people who are otherwise huge fans of her work reticent. But the sort of corollary to that or the second question is like, I think that's probably true about poetry in general. Yeah. I feel like fewer and fewer people read poetry and more people think of it as something that is only understood by a sort of priestly class. <laughs> <laughs> right. We can decode the secret messages in the poems, and so why bother? It's too difficult. Maybe we should look at some more of the poetry. You know, like one of the poems that I really liked a lot, and I don't even know if I could say why, was this poem, At First I Thought You Were Talking About. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could read it, and then maybe we could walk through it? Sure. This is At First I Thought You Were Talking About by Audre Lorde. Do you think, I guess, in as much as so-so, to be sure, yes, I see, would you mean? But listen, yet and still, on the other hand, like as if you know, oh, at first I thought you were talking about a bird, a flower, your anguish, the precision of trial by fury, apes in the roses, a body-sized box, even my own mother's sadness freezing into diamonds, sanctified beyond description, and brilliant as death. There are 237 footfalls from the parking lot to this metal table, this mechanical desk of judgment. The early spring sun shines on the face of the building, but is cut off at the door. Now take my body and blood as the last recorded sacrifice of a negative image upon the revolving door pane of this building, where even the elevators are tired. To be sure, yes, I know. What did you mean, by the way? But listen, yet and still on the other hand, like, you know, just as if, do you think, I guess, in as much as, so-so, oh, well, I see. At first, I thought you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a person maybe having a conversation on the phone and then looking out the window and looking into themselves at the same time and then kind of coming back and being, oh yeah, I'm having this conversation again. Like, what were we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, I just love the structure of this poem. You know, it starts off with that, that conversation and then it moves into this really powerful list of things that this person might've been talking about, which at first is sort of like a flower, a bird, and then apes in the roses. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Okay. Um, 
a body-sized box. Now we're getting darker. But then, you know, even my own mother's sadness, freezing into diamonds, sanctified beyond description, and brilliant as death. I mean, that is just incredible. And she had a, from what I've read, a fairly complex relationship with her mother. How do you see that kind of playing out in an image like this? Yeah, it is. It is such a beautiful image. Every time I read this poem, I'm like, maybe it's about this. First, I was like, I feel like it's her critique of academia and people not really saying what they're really saying, you know. Then I started to feel like it's actually also framed by her interface with the medical industrial complex and that metal table and Mm -hmm. that body-sized box because she's dealing with her terror at the fact that she's going to die and she's having this biopsy for the first tumor during this time period. And so I think that that's, that's also part of it there's a dissociation that's happening because of how terrifying that is for her. She believed that there is a solidifying of something emotional that has to do with tumors in her body. So when we have this image, even my own mother's sadness, freezing into diamonds, sanctified beyond description, and brilliant as death, we also come at what are the multiple ways that she could describe the reality or the possibility of cancer in a world where people try to talk around it. And she's feeling like her medical providers are not really communicating with her with the clarity that she wants. So now, as a biographer, I have all this context that I bring to this poem. That is to say, though, that for every reader of the poem, we understand this language, you know, in as much as, to be sure, you know, like this buffer language that we sometimes used to soften what we're saying or just to actually not say anything, you know, like mm. evade what we're saying. And then in the center of the poem, we have these kind of twin, right? It comes in with that language. It, we go out with that language. And as you say, in the center, there's like, I thought you were talking about, right? Something specific in nature, your anguish, the precision of trial by fury. What a phrase, you know, like the trial by fury, the specificity. There are two 137 footfalls from the parking lot to this metal table. You know, like it's it's the contrast of I'm going to be so specific, even though I still can't describe it. I so relate to that line about the 237 footfalls <laughs> because I'm one of these people who like if I stop, if like I'm walking down the street and I stop and I really listen to what's going on in my head, I'm like counting how many steps I take. Well, <laughs> Yeah. And it's just this habitual thing where I'll be, I'll walk down the street and if I stop and listen, I'm like 45, 46, 47. <laughs> yeah. So she, you know, she's doing that too. And the, like the last recorded sacrifice of a negative image, you know, specifically, where does the sun stop hitting the building? It's this listening that Audrey Lord described for herself as somebody who was legally blind as she felt like she always had to bring things right up to her eye, really bring them close. And she felt that her poetry was like, I'm bringing it close, like I'm scrutinizing everything. And in her relationship, she's like, in her conversation, she's like, I'm scrutinizing you, like I'm listening to you with a level of specificity that was so important. Okay, so all that is to say, even my own mother's sadness and her mother's emotional life shows up in so many of her poems across Audre Lorde's career and once at a fundraiser for the for the Women's Experimental Theater at Barnard, she said, you know, if she actually had a collection that was just her poems about her mother, that could be an incredible collection. And, and 
and that that relationship kept changing and changing and changing. And it is part of the major engine of her poetry. In Christopher Street Magazine once, Audre Lorde said, my mother was a maniacal hysteric controlled by furies, right? And then she says, and so am I. <laughs> yeah, fury is a word that she likes a lot, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's there. Yeah, Fury is with her. And of course, she has her essay, The Uses of Anger, and eye to eye, Black women's hatred and anger. She really does theorize anger in her poetry and in her essays. Her mother was so strict and was not having any of this acting out that Audrey was doing that her sisters weren't doing, like she was the one. And then layered on top of the fact that her mother was super light-skinned and could potentially pass for not even being a Black woman. And Audrey was the darkest of her sisters. And there was like all of this stuff going on. She would have her wash her hands over and over again, almost like she was washing off her actual brown skin color. You know, like these images that are abusive images, ultimately. And she understood the relationship to be abusive in some ways. And she felt that there was a way that maybe her mother would never understand her or accept her as a Black lesbian feminist, or even as a writer, you know, like her emphasis on writing and not the more practical decisions that you might expect of a daughter of immigrant parents and all of that. So all of that was there. And Audre Lorde adored her mother. Her first poems, little child poems, are about her mother. And she would pick up grass out of the few green spaces they went to in Harlem and make bouquets for her mom out of weeds. She has this journal entry when her mom is towards the end of her life. And she says, I've avoided writing in here because I don't want to write about my mother making her peace with her own death. I must tell her that I still find her beautiful. And by the time she writes Zami, Audre Lorde is understanding her mother as her first poetry teacher because she's using the English language in this different way as a Grenadian immigrant and also as her model for Black lesbian feminism because although her mother would never have identified as a lesbian and there's no claim that she had like romantic relationships with anyone other than Audre Lorde's father, her power and her strength and her deviance from some of the norms of femininity, Audre Lorde sees herself in that legacy and starts to really claim, I am my mother's daughter, when there was a time where she was like, we're so different, she doesn't understand me and she'll never understand me, you know? So then to imagine that we may carry the grief of our parents in our bodies in such a way that they could crystallize into, for example, a tumor, which in the case of this first tumor that Audre Lorde had ended up being benign is like, oh, brilliant as death. You know, like how does pain reproduce itself across generations? How about a negative image upon the revolving door pane of this building where even the elevators are tired? <laughs> elevators are tired. I mean, it's like, come on. The depth and the layers and, you know, the image of the diamond, like the pressure that is just adding up, right? And when we diffuse it, when we're vague with our language, and this is what's at stake. And so this poem could be read alongside the transformation of silence into language and action, right? Which is a, a talk that Audre Lorde gave at the MLA where she is talking about the same time period in her life where she says, I realized that if I didn't say what I meant, it would not protect me. Not saying these things was not keeping me healthy. It was not keeping me safe. 
Your silence will not protect you. My silence has not protected me. So the waffling, the vagueness in language, she was over it. She was like, we got to say what we mean, even if, and especially if it brings us to this level of imagery where there's still a lot of curiosity and wonder. Let us wonder what we're saying because the imagery is so complex and is doing so much and not because we're talking about so-and-so and and this and that and you know yeah so this is definitely one of my favorite poems in the collection too yeah it's it's one of mine too it's it's really great Uh, what did you learn in the process of writing that book about audrey lord that you feel like people don't know or people need to know that they didn't know before Mm, you know so much but i mean to say it broadly it's really that audrey lord audrey lord is a cosmic force Audre Lorde was a science nerd and a science fiction (laughs) addict. That's her science fiction addict is her own phrase that she used from a young age. And the imagery in her poetry of sand, of volcanoes, of stones is not actually purely metaphorical. She really was interested in earth and our relationship with earth, literally. And she was like studying stones and all of this geology and reading all of this science literature for her entire life. And I don't think people recognize that. In so many interviews, she talks about us having, yes, to understand the creative power of difference in our relationships with each other. But she says, if we don't shift our relationship to this planet, we won't even be able to have these conversations because we will not be able to exist. And I don't think that people think about Audre Lorde as an environmentalist or as an eco-feminist or as a science nerd, really. But she really was her whole life, like from childhood to the moment that she took her last breath. She was thinking about meteors. She was reading up on what caused these rocks to form out of the earth. I really want people to be able to have a conversation. I want people to think about Audre Lorde and that the fact that they should read Audre Lorde's poetry to think about what to do about our climate crisis. And they should read Audre Lorde's poetry to think about what it means to be in relationship with this planet at this time. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited for the conversations that can come out of that revelation. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes which are administered by Yale University Libraries, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.